We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, but even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we're seeing is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Oh, I always like hearing that voice. Lyndon Johnson at the end there. If not for Vietnam, he'd be remembered as a great president who got a lot done. And all the focus of late has been on the presidency and to a lesser extent, Congress. We have an insane, uh, not particularly bright man as president. And, you know, that's where all the focus is. The reality is we want change. We want a government that actually serves the common good. What a concept. And focusing on Congress, we need to make a change in 2018 in Congress. That's got to be done. There's also the level at the state where we have state legislatures and governors, 50 governors, and most of the governors now are Republican. We have a Republican governor right here in New Hampshire with a rather famous last name, uh, Mr. Sununu. Uh, And uh, a lot happens at the state level. It gets a lot less coverage, but we have a gubernatorial election coming up in 2016. Yeah, it was kind of a tough year for Democrats all over the place. Uh, we, some of us elected, I didn't elect Chris Sununu, and we had three candidates, Democratic candidates for governor. The big surprise was the guy who came in second out of three. We had Colin Van Western. He was our nominee. And let's see, there was Mark Connolly, who was pretty well funded, who came in third. We have here a candidate from 2016 who is running in 2018 already, and that is not a bad thing to get going early, to get organized, to start raising money. He raised and spent a lot less money than the other guys, but shocked everybody by coming in second. There's a reason for that, and I got to tell you, you know, it's, it's one thing to be right on the issues. It's best to win. It's really best to win. And the fact that Steve Marchand did so well on such little money that's a good sign. Steve Marchand, this, this show comes to us uh, in Portsmouth, obviously, where we are sitting right now, but it also plays in Concord, New Hampshire, yeah. and in Walpole, New Hampshire. Yeah. And uh, why are you running for governor? I've known Chris Sununu a long time. And one of the things when I do all the stuff, I've done, I think, 86 meet and greets already this year around the state. And you get a lot of feedback. You're, you're teaching, right? Hey, here's who I am. But you're actually doing a lot of learning. Because you're all over the place uh, several nights a week. And one of the things, the feedback I get is I don't spend a lot of my time just going off on what's wrong. I think it's really important to talk about what a positive alternative vision would be 
so that I don't want people to just say I'm voting against something. Right. I want them to vote for something. Tell us. And that is, I think, part of how you get success up and down the ticket because um, that's where enthusiasm comes from. You get much more governable enthusiasm from people going for something than simply voting against, though there's both in 2018. Oh, no question. And I remember in 2004, uh, John Kerry was not Bush. But who was he? What did he say? He tried to be all things to all people. And frankly, we had uh, a nominee like that for president in 2016 and uh, didn't do all that well. And so not everybody—I know you were mayor of Portsmouth. For the people who don't know you, who are you? So I'm a born and bred New Hampshire guy. I'm from Manchester. Uh, My folks are from Quebec, and they came down in the 60s like a lot of folks in Manchester did. Uh, Met in Manch, married in Manch. Neither with a high school degree, French first language of the house, classic immigrant, first generation American here. Uh, went to college at Syracuse University. Eventually, I got my master of public administration, oh, which comes in handy for what I did since then. For public administration. You got it. I mean, when folks say government, you, uh, you should run government like a business, I correct them. There are elements of best practices of how you run any organization, private, public, nonprofit, that you can apply. But it's not just like a business because you're not trying to maximize profit. You're trying to maximize outcomes for people. And a lot of times when times are toughest is when government is needed the most. So when revenues are down because times are tough are often the times when government needs to be tapped into uh, like unemployment insurance. The times when people pay in the least because employment is down are the times where you need that insurance to be paid out the most. So it's different from a business and it's important. And an MPA is is like an MBA with the sensibility of the public sector required. Uh, so uh, I used to audit cities. I still do some auditing, uh, performance audits of local, uh-huh. county, and state governments. Still doing that as of a month ago. Trying, and it's going to be full-time now candidate, but trying to pay a few bills doing that. Did it full-time for many years. Uh, was a local elected official, was a city councilor, and then a mayor here, as you said, in Portsmouth. Uh, and then uh, a few years after that, was a director of corporate relations for the University of New Hampshire. Uh, it was a new position. I applied and got it. And for several years, I got to spend time on site with businesses in New Hampshire in a non-political environment. And I would just ask them lots and lots of questions. Why are you here? What do you need? What are the impediments to growth? What are the things you're afraid of? And a lot of the public policy I drive with, uh, it really comes down to this. The, I think people would be surprised at progressive solutions that are pro-entrepreneur, pro-growth, pro-job creation. And when you get the business leaders in a non-political environment and you just have a conversation, give me nitty gritty. They'll talk about paid family leave. They talk about Mm -hmm. universal health care. They talk about um, pre-K through 12 public education. They talk about increased infrastructure spending and more. But that stuff comes up from their lips. And these are people that are self-described conservative sure. business people. Right. But they do math. And the math of it is these are the means to achieve the end of growth, more entrepreneurship, more job creation, uh, more fairness in the way that wealth is created. All these things come from these policies that too often we think you have to choose between right. thoughtful, progressive strategies and a pro-entrepreneur, pro-growth, pro-job creation solution. It's not an or, it's an and. That's really interesting. So you, you picked that up from working at UNH in the, in the corporate relations and because uh, it makes sense for them. 
you know, you can't have a business if you don't have roads, if you don't have bridges, if you don't have an educated workforce. It just looks a little bit long-term, but you have to do that. So it really is in their interest. I'm reminded, I got a lot of history. I'm an old guy. What can I say? Paul Songus. I was a, a Songus supporter yep. in 1992. Pro-business and pro-choice. And, you know, he was certainly a, a social liberal. And I think, you know, he was a very good candidate and uh, had some... Uh, Clinton uh, tactics used against him, shall we say, especially in Florida. But people yeah. go for that kind of thing. And I think being positive and relating to business, you can be pro-business and be you know, progressive at the same time. And I tell people, while uh, I've been self-employed and I've done my own work in auditing and public affairs, all these sort of things, I, don't, I do not go out there and claim that I was a CEO of a top 50 company because that would be disingenuous. But my job, kind of like I tell my kids, well, they don't even know what encyclopedias are now because they're young enough that people don't, I guess, use that much. But I tell them, when I was a kid, my job was not to memorize the encyclopedia. My job was to learn how to use the encyclopedia. And so, uh, likewise, my job is to be an expert on a handful of things. But on everything else, you get hit with dozens of questions every time I go out. And you can't even pretend to be an expert on every one of them. Your job is to go learn from people who are swimming in those issues uh, every day and constantly be learning and then tweaking policy to fit these outcomes that we're trying to drive towards. And what I find, among other things, most of my Republican friends, I'm not talking Fox News, talking heads. I mean just people going to work, coming home. Um, They're not anti-government. They want to know that government is uh, using data. They want to know that we're driving towards the outcomes that matter most. Um, But they get that when it comes to the blocking and tackling of life, community, schools, public safety, sanitation, infrastructure, all the things you care about, uh, there is a role for the public sector. They just want to make sure that the people that are helping run it have their act together and also have an element of empathy in understanding the impact of doing things well or not well and how we make decisions. So when you do that, I can say we need more revenue and you'll find Republicans that go, yeah, you're right. And you're not going to get 100% of people. If it, if it was, this would be easy. It's not easy. <laughs> but you, th- there's a coalition out there of progressive solutions that is wider than a lot of people think it is. If you connect the dots between the policies we're talking about and how they have a direct positive impact on growing the economy, on creating net jobs, on improving quality of life, on improving fairness in the way that wealth is created. People are there, they just, but you got to connect the dots for them about policy and outcomes. That's for sure. Just, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is the so far only announced candidate for governor of New Hampshire in 2018, Steve Marchand, former mayor uh, Portsmouth, who's, uh, boy, your campaign is uh, going full tilt already. How, I mean, you, you've been everywhere meeting with a lot of people. And I, I, as a former candidate myself, connecting with people. People, like, take a measure of who you are. They want to see, does this person, this guy, this woman, listen to me? Does, does he or she get what is important to me? Democrats in the 2016 election... Um, our nominee was seen as out of touch, not listening to the people. Uh, and, and she didn't connect with people. Let's face it. And uh, I think it's exceedingly unfortunate, the turnout that we got. 
But, uh, you know, Democrats have not connected well with their former base of support, working people. I mean, no question, uh, you know, there are people on the left, a very small left, who are against capitalism. I ain't one of those. You ain't one of those. Nobody really. I mean, that's the beauty, I think, of America is that we can have small businesses, uh, businesses get loans from banks, uh, get help occasionally from the government and hire people and pay their taxes. But what about working people? I mean, the unions are pretty much decimated. How do you think you can connect with them and pry them away from their votes for Republicans? I mean, I think there are two levels. And uh, one I'd call almost kind of a gut level, and one is mm. a policy or intellectual level. And they both matter. And they're both, I think uh, sometimes, uh, especially with my Democratic friends, um, will emphasize the intellectual level at the expense of the fact that politics and government is at the end a people business. It All it is, all we're doing, it's spreadsheets and policies, but what it really is, is people figuring out how to work with people. Absolutely. It's a people business. So you need both. Yeah. And, uh, and by the way, I think that the most successful politicians on both sides of the aisle uh, have been able to connect both sides of the brain or the gut and the brain when they need to. Uh, and I try to do that too. So on a cultural gut level, uh, do I think that universal health care is a good idea on a policy level? You bet. Businesses told me conservative think tanks are starting to realize that one of the greatest look this is how i connect the dots i go on on the on the intellectual level the policy level we know almost all net new job creation in this country comes from new businesses how do new businesses get formed typically by people that work somewhere else and at a certain moment had an idea an inspiration and and guts and they went for it, and they started a business. And it's usually off of a credit card or a loan from a mm. family member. It's yeah. not sexy most of the time. It's really hard. And really? they fail a lot. Yeah. But that is the engine of growth in new job creation. And those tend to be jobs from low, middle, high skill, high pay. It, it's, it's a key part of diversifying the economy in a good way. Well, the greatest impediment to people leaving a company and starting their own business, that, that one of those key ingredients of growth, is the way we do healthcare right now. We act like it's still 1943 and FDR, you know, the boys are off to war and we put a wage freeze on because of the supply demand curves were so out of whack during the war. There was nobody here to take jobs. So FDR put a wage freeze on, but the employer said, I'll tell you what, I can't pay you more than X, but I can give you lots of healthcare. And why not? Um, Life expectancy is only about 66, and nobody changes jobs. Right. uh, And healthcare is really cheap. Hmm. Well, it's we've 71 years later, we're acting like these three things are true. None of these things (laughs) are true, and it ends up being the reason people won't leave a business to start their own business because the risk, which is already high when you start a business, is impossibly scary when you don't know for sure if you're going to be able to maintain quality health insurance that isn't going to bankrupt you if one bad thing happens. So on that level, I say, look, guys, forget the you. If you want to be a passionate believer in the free market, then you should be embracing universal health care because the business leaders told me it's impeding the free flow of talent and capital to the places where it'll do the most good. So on an intellectual level, the policies all drive us towards universal health care on a gut level. 
I was in a family where we went bankrupt because we didn't have insurance when I was in high school. I know what it's like to be in the house where we didn't make money. This was around 1990. My dad was a carpenter. Uh, bad time to be in the housing market in New Hampshire. Around oh, The, the banks all went under. Yeah. My dad built a house on the west side of Manchester. Couldn't sell it. Nobody would get a mortgage. We have no money. We have our own mortgage to pay at our house. Yeah. Uh, and then my dad cuts expenses. One of the ones he cut was our insurance. Three months after that, my mom has a heart attack at 39 years old. She survived. She's still with us. But $80,000 medical bill from the hospital in Manchester. And they say, I hear about this flexibility. You know, the healthcare reform would give you flexibility. The choice whether or not to have health insurance. That's not the choice people want to have. They want to know... <laughs> They want to know that they have choices in life. And when you don't have health insurance, you don't have choices in life. And so we filed bankruptcy because we didn't have the money to pay the $80,000 bill. We didn't have the money to pay the insurance premium. How are we going to have eighty grand to pay the bill? And it, it screws you. You end up with your credit being screwed for seven years and more after. You end up being harder to employ. So uh, to me, the passion is I know what it's like to have right. your feet in those shoes. Right. Not acceptable. Unacceptable. So on an intellectual level, I know it grows the economy. On a gut level, I know what it's like when your family is arguing because mom feels like she's guilty because she had a heart attack. Dad feels like he failed because he couldn't make money. I feel like a jerk because I'm trying to get to college tuition. You know, I was in high school. We all feel like we did something wrong. None of us did anything wrong. And until we get out of that box, America's not going to get where it needs to go. And so it's intellectual and it's guttural. Yeah, people, I, I would think people who are in difficult straits would uh, connect with that. And talk about guts. I remember when I was campaigning one year, I was outside a factory gate. You know, I, I got ideas about how we can fix things, what can be done. And shaking hands as people walk by. And this woman said to me, I'm not making this up. She said, I like your smile. I'll vote for you. And I was thinking... Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to hear something? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, people, especially in New Hampshire, I think, where we take politics so seriously, it's our state sport, people get a measure of you. They they meet you, they expect to meet every presidential candidate many times, yeah. and they take a measure of you. And honestly, I mean, I was hoping Bernie Sanders would win the New Hampshire primary by 15 points. He won by 22 points. That's, I think, largely because... You could trust him. You know he's for real. And people get, we have a, we're very attuned to that. Is this person for real? You look at him, you look him or her in the eyes. Is this for real? And uh, you know, you're doing that. You're out there uh, meeting. How many, I mean, you've been, how many places, how many meetings, whatever, in the past? I mean, I don't, when did you kick this campaign yeah, off? Yeah, so anyway. officially it was the first few days of April. But unofficially, right. it, by January, I was getting invited to speak at events and, and, um, between the turnout, folks that had supported one of the other two quality candidates running. Oh, yeah. I, I have respect for both of the guys oh, that yeah. ran last year. Absolutely. Um, but very early, I had folks saying, I'll, you have my political support, you have my financial support, you have my volunteer support. Before I was asking, and it was getting awkward, because I, I figured by then, yeah, I am going to run an 18. Uh, but it seems too early to say that. But then it, I was not able to organize these offerings these assets that were coming to me 
And I and until you announce and you file the paperwork and all, you're limited in what you can do. And so we made the decision to do it, and I don't regret it at all because people are ready to rock and roll. Yeah, we announced our first list of a thousand public supporters from 185 towns a few weeks ago. Uh, later this week, we'll have another list of uh, current elected officials uh, that are already on board. This stuff is way before anybody has done any of this at numbers that are far greater than folks traditionally release them later. And I like to think it's the result of doing a lot of work with a lot of just good old one-on-one, one-on-ten. I'll be the guy to, sh- to lock the door at the end with you. Like, yeah. I'm not going to leave till we're done, you know? That takes some passion. <laughs> that really takes some passion. That's one thing Bernie had. You know, people, yeah. were, people were looking. Bernie and Hillary were about the same age. And she looked tired, worn out. Bernie's pat his energy came from within. It was for real. I'm getting the sense that... Uh, People are seeing that about you. Uh, so you've been to how many towns and places? Well, I know we 234 done... towns in New Hampshire. Oh, I know. Uh, <laughs> I know. Some of them are very small. Um, and very far. Uh, and very far. <laughs> yeah. And we've been to some of the very far places already. Um, so we've done 85 meet and greets wow. in, in the classic, uh, you sure. alluded to the presidential, you know, the town hall setting. 85 that I, I try to be picky about it. So I, I, I'd rather be understated than overstated. Uh, when people, you know, if somebody wants to check. So I've done 85 where you give opening remarks and then you take Q&A for an extended period. Right. And there are other places where you make brief remarks and, and it's part of a program and, and those are fine. And then there are others where I don't speak, but I'll go to the event and, you know, you grind it out. But 85 that we would classify as classic meet and greet. I'll take your questions until you kick me out kind of opportunities. Obviously, in all 10 counties. Most of them in separate community, probably they from seventy plus communities, and now they're mainly um, organic meet and greets. That is to say, supporters who are hosting events, and now we're getting the already that what I call the second generation of supporters. Mm. They're the ones mm. I didn't know in April, but because folks that saw me in April said I'm with you, right. I say, well, you host an event, and then now they're hosting them, and now their new friends to me are coming, and now some of them say I'll do one. So when you start early you have the chance to get these several generations of supporters and they become less and less partisan because it becomes less about you're a Democrat. I'll show up at your event at the beginning. And now it's my friend who says, you're the guy, you're the one. I'm not even a Democrat. And if my friend says you're really something, I'm willing to give it a shot. That's, That's so really important. powerful. That's so important. I, I got to tell you, I was, I, I can't tell you how often, I mean, this is coming back to me a little bit. I'm kind of proud of it that, People kept saying, Bert, you're the only Democrat I'm voting for. I was never quite sure why, but it's absolutely essential. Now, as you know, you know, the legislature, there's 424 people there. That's a big legislature. That's kind of nuts, in my opinion. However, that's what it is. Uh, And you never served in either uh, the legislature or the executive branch of state government. But as a mayor, you were an executive. Uh, The candidates in 2016... Did we had you know both of them had been one was an executive council one had been a uh, a state rep, also serving uh, doing important work in the uh, uh, secretary of state's right. office when it comes to uh, taking on the banks that did some bad things. Uh, good candidates, as you agree, uh, for a governor to get things done, he or she must know how to work the four hundred twenty four people in the legislature. Your comments? Yeah, I think there's a few elements to it. First of all, I'm not. Uh, one of these uh, people that wants to inherently hold it against somebody 
because they did serve for some period of time in the legislature. You know, like at, at the national level, you know, well, Trump said this, you know, I'm not in, the, I, I alone can fix it because I wasn't part of it or whatever. Right. Um, the, uh, it's a volunteer legislature. Yes. And so uh, with a few exceptions, generally speaking, most of the people that are uh, a state rep, a state senator, executive counselor, uh, they're not doing it to get rich. Right. And they're probably only doing it for a short period of time as part of hopefully a life well-led that's well-rounded and civic in nature. Uh, so I don't hold it against anybody and uh, you know, so, so forth. However, a few things. One is uh, in a city council mayor environment, I learned very quickly and I was proud of it. The way that you get things done with a group of other people is a lot of personal relationship building where uh, I had to build trust, especially I was only 31 when I got elected. And, uh, and I think I had to bend over backwards to, to make sure that other members of my council knew that I was trustworthy. So I would start by having breakfast and coffee with them one-on-one. -on -one, and I'd ask them, what do you want to achieve? I'm not even talking about what your positions are. What are your goals? That helps me understand when you take a position, the meaning behind it. Because wherever I can get to yes, I'd like to try to get to yes. And, uh, and then I had to prove that if they were vulnerable to me, you know, like if they, if they confided that they would not read about it in the paper or hear about it from another member of the council. So you, you only get one shot to earn that trust with uh -huh. your cohorts. Sure. And I take pride that I, I think they all would say and f that I, I kept that trust. If there were things that they were telling me to help build understanding, but that would leave them vulnerable, if I were to share that information, they, I did not share that information. Right. Because the trust is the trust. key. And I think uh, even though I've been a Democrat all my life, I'm very proud of it, uh, I'll, I'll work with anybody but you can do that without compromising your principles. And I do think that we may see in 2018 some backlash, even among some Republican legislators, from voters that say they want to communicate, this is not acceptable what's going on at the state or federal level. Right. And uh, I hope that if we do well in 2018, and I think we will, in 2019, I want to use this uh, strong, clear message with hopefully majorities in the House and Senate to be able to go back to, to people on both sides of the aisle and say, look, I ran on a specific platform. There is a mandate that comes from that. I am looking for opportunities to work with you. And I have to try to earn that trust. But I'm not going to compromise my principles along the way. I have to try to earn trust. And that's an intense interpersonal process early in the process. Boy, it is intense, I can tell you. And for those who may have just tuned in, who's this guy talking so much here? <laughs> this is Steve Marchand. And I, it's, I've been to events. It's fun to hear. And... Uh, a lot of ideas, a lot of passion, and uh, Steve Marchand is running for governor in 2018. Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And, uh, you know, I, I did find, I was in the legislature for 14 years. People, people complain about their state senators and state reps. I got to tell you, even people with whom I disagreed, sometimes really strongly, they're not there for the money, as you say. They are there to honestly serve what they see as the common good. They truly are. They really want to be public servants. We can disagree, but that is their motivation. And I think having that understanding, it can serve you well. We've had governors who, who understand that. We have had some governors who haven't played ball nicely with their schoolmates. <laughs> and you pay for that. I mean, it may feel good at the moment yeah. to snap at somebody or to diss them. 
in the long run, again, it's a. I tell folks, this, uh, politics is a people business, and it's uh, politics of addition whenever you can. Uh. Whenever I can find opportunities to build coalitions, they may change from issue to issue. But uh, on an issue like, as you know, I, I favor the legalization of uh, marijuana for recreational purposes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did last year. I still do. Uh, I think that other states' experiences is showing that this is going in that direction. Uh, 70% of New Hampshireites agree with that. Uh, More people agree with legalization than simply decriminalization. Uh, So there are some Republicans I know who say, I would vote for you in the general election if you had been the nominee, simply because you are clear and you get the issues, you get how that helps the opiate crisis, you get how that'll lower cost, you you get how that'll improve criminal justice, and you get how that'll generate revenue that'll help us do some of the things we got to do. There are Republicans who say that issue, and a lot of libertarian-style Republicans who say, you get that. Now, will I agree with them on other issues? I uh, There's some I know we disagree. Right. Uh, like some gun-related issues, for example. But uh, I'm, I don't want to let our disagreement on some other important issues get in the way of where I think I can get agreement and thus get something turned into law. Yeah, I want to try to go there where I can. I think that's that's so true. I, and, and one thing I learned fairly quickly is that uh, you know your enemy on one issue may be a best friend on a different issue. You got to work with them, you know, and have respect for one another. That that can be a, a really good thing. How much you were the only one during the campaign to recognize that, hey, folks, it's time to end prohibition against marijuana. It hasn't worked at all. It's created more problems than it's solved. And New Hampshire is a live free or die state. Now, what could be more consistent with live free? And here's a source of money. I don't know why most politicians are so afraid to touch this issue. The public is way ahead of them on this. How much do you think it mattered in the last election in your Frankly, surprisingly strong showing. It was. I think it was clearly an element. I mean, in elections, differences. Your people are looking for differences there because they're making a, a choice. Right, right. Sometimes it's on style, uh, or or personal narrative. Sometimes it's on issues. And this was one issue where I think there was a difference. Oh yeah. I to me, it's like it's like some other issues. For example, I'm against the death penalty, but unlike my two opponents last year, I also opposed it in the case of the person who was on death row. And my take on that is not that I uh, didn't think that what that person did was uh, terrible, awful. Yes, yes. But it was a statement that said, if we all agree the death penalty is wrong tomorrow, how is it okay today? And uh, you can commute it to life with no chance of parole, as they do in some other states like Colorado. It is not unprecedented. And I think it's intellectually consistent. Uh, It's good public policy as well. I think it's also morally the right thing to do. To me, that's the most conservative position. Is there any bigger government than the death penalty? <laughs> it, what is small government versus big government? Is it continuing to uh, keep illegal recreational use of marijuana? Or is the smaller government to legalize recreational use of marijuana? I, I think it's odd, and it, cho- it tells me that this new coalition that I talk about includes people that may not even call themselves Democrats or call themselves progressives, but when you ask them on an issue-by-issue basis, how do you feel about the way we do healthcare in this country? How do you feel about marijuana? How do you feel about the death penalty? How do you feel about pre-K, the importance of pre-K? When we, I can go boom, 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 and they go, yeah, 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 that's me. And I'm like, well, guess what? You might be a Democrat too. If what it means to be a Democrat for the next 20 years 
is a party and people and leaders who share this worldview in these positions. And that's how I'm surprised at the kind of people that show up at my events, give money, not thousands, but you know, I mean, they give some money and they say, I'm on the team, use my name. They're not all Democrats, but they're, I think that they are Democrats of the future. Ah, interesting, interesting. And you're right. I mean, on so many issues, the average non-political person, I mean, it, most people are like not nearly as political crazy as you and I are. And but they care about these issues. If you talk to them and listen to them, they really on our side. And it has it bugs me when there's this fear thing among politicians. You know, if somebody says, "Oh, I'm from this or that town," I can't. You know, I may personally be for legalization, but oh, I'd never get reelected. In fact, <laughs> I, I <laughs> there was one state senator when I was in there uh, who said uh, he was a Republican, a moderate Republican, uh, that he was with me on. Uh, anti-discrimination, so-called gay rights. He said, oh, but if I vote for that, my town of X would never vote for me. I was pleased that he lost anyway. Because <laughs> he didn't have the guts, you know, and th with regard to the death penalty and things like that, I think consistency is important. And if people really think about it, and I think your point about the ultimate uh, big government is taking a life. You know, I, I, I think people... People get that. And justice, maybe this is more intellectual than gut, is not about revenge. Revenge, you know, is not the same thing. We, we had at this desk here that you're sitting at, uh, I can't think of his name now, his daughter was killed in the Oklahoma City bombing. And he was obviously pretty upset. And his first thing was he wanted to personally kill the guy that did it. But after a bit of time, he was here he, traveling the country against the death penalty because it's not going to bring his daughter back. It's not going to bring justice. It's just revenge. We want safe streets. We want the bad guys not to threaten us uh, and, and hopefully people to learn a lesson. But what does the death penalty really do? What does the death penalty really do? Are you finding that that has a, a fair amount of traction? Because a lot of people... I, I think they feel like revenge. We have to, oh, especially cop killers. You know, you got to, because they put their lives out there and their risk all the time, and we have to give that message. And frankly, I think the police unions, I can't help but think, would like to keep the death penalty. Uh, and there's exceptions, and there will be members of public safety and law enforcement who have privately reached out to me over the last year plus that I was a candidate last year yeah. and so far this year, who have said, hey, even though some of the public positions, those that wear the uniform that I wear, uh, oppose your position, I am. I want you to know that there's a not insignificant number of people in, in my world right. who agree with the position you're taking. Right. Um, but again, I go back to, if, if these things were easy, they would usually already be done. And so I get that when 30 or 40 or even more percent of people do not share your view at the beginning... Of a of a debate, that's not a reason to avoid it. Mm -hmm. It means I got to do a really good job. I mean, I I've got to be really persuasive. I've got to be the result of a lot of evaluation, uh, self reflection, listening to other people, reading, studying, and then at the end of that process, when you take a position, you'd like to think that it's a thoughtful one yeah. that you can defend well, yes. and it, that's part of where the passion comes out. Is because I'm not some Johnny Come Lately on public policy. Um, going back to my academic days, these are the kind of things I enjoyed 
uh, studying, debating, seeing you know best practices of other communities, what works. If something, if I try something and it doesn't work, I'm unafraid to say it because the goal here is outcomes. It's not inputs. It's outcomes. So I, you've got to have an intellectual curiosity. And frankly, when I look at our current governor, almost irrespective of some of the differences I have with him on positions, part of where I think the real problem is is a lack of intellectual curiosity about the causal relationship between what we do and how it improves or does not improve lives. Mm -hmm. That intellectual curiosity is at the core of successful leadership. And so there are these three words that people mix up all the time, but they're really different. It's uh, causation, correlation, and coincidence. And what you want are leaders that are, are hungry for causation, because it means that when I put a dollar into something that has a causal relationship to an outcome, we're going to get the best outcomes. A lot of politicians, and I think Chris does this a lot, chase things that are coincidental or correlative. And that means that you can put money in, not get the result you want, and then blame government. It's not, quote, government's fault. It's the leadership's fault. It's the inability to create that causal relationship between what you put in and what you get out. And I think people are hungry for leadership that is hungry for finding that causal relationship and going and getting it relentlessly. And getting some actual solutions that are going to improve our lives. Now, I've heard it said that, uh, you know, I expect 2018 to be a better year for Democrats. However, people in New Hampshire, as you know, you know, go back and forth across the ballot. They want to sort of balance it out. My sense is right now, at this moment in time, People are fairly happy with Chris Sununu. He's he's got a good image. I, I remember recently there was some problem with some, uh, I think a, a puppy mill or something like that, and and our governor jumped on that because it was super easy and it was as you say coincidental. You know, ooh, let's be on the side of puppies. <laughs> I call stuff that's easy. Literally, I call it for years. It's not new. Pro puppy legislation. <laughs> And then this happened, and I'm like, oh, my God, for the first time, there's literally pro-puppy executive orders. And look, I got two dogs. I'm as pro-dog as you're going to get, but that's not why I'm running for governor. Really? (laughs) Everybody loves puppies. Oh, puppies, right. As you say, that's the easy stuff. How is Chris Sununu vulnerable? I think he's vulnerable in in a few ways. There are the things that we control in New Hampshire, and there there are the things we don't control, those national wins that you were alluding to. Winds of change at the national level. Um, First of all, I don't think that there's a governing philosophy there. Uh, If you look at uh, some of the early priorities that Chris had, they are what I would describe as very red meat conservative base issues that aren't going to improve the economic climate. They uh, do not match with the priorities of most people of New Hampshire. And in some cases, he didn't even succeed in getting those red meat issues passed, despite having majorities in the House and Senate. So, for example, right to work. Yes. He, that was one of the few issues of substance that he put his personal and political capital on the line. And it didn't pass. And of course it didn't pass. Not only is it a bad idea, right to work, right. but it wouldn't even do the thing that, that advocates say it will. Uh, it, it does not improve the economic climate. We're already in an age of globalization and mechanization, and there are a decreasing number of tools in the toolbox to give working people a legitimate chance in that kind of environment. Uh, 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 Unionization is one of the few tools we have to try to combat the negative forces 
that come to people with globalization and mechanization. Right. So the idea of right to work helping the economy, when only about 7% of New Hampshire's unionized to begin with, it just takes, it's not to improve the private sector, it was to damage the public sector. And I think that there are enough Republicans and most Democrats who feel that way. But that's one of the only things he put capital into. Uh, there are other things that he declined to put capital into that I think do send a message to the rest of the country, like LGBTQ equality. Right. When we're talking about gender identity, we're one of two states in the country that have uh, uh, polit- uh, uh, legal protection based on sexual orientation, but not for gender identity. It's us and Scott Walker's Wisconsin. Uh-huh. Only two states. And really? what, Wow, that's interesting. I bet a lot of people don't know that. And the day before the big vote that would have matched the legal protections for the gender identity category, he was asked by a press, are you going to lean on Republicans to vote for this? And he said, I'm just going to kind of monitor it. Uh. And, and I'm like, well, you're just going <laughs> to kind of monitor civil rights, equal rights, human rights. And it failed by a handful of votes. Uh, to me, leadership is is skating to where the puck is going, not to where the puck has been. And it means that you've got to lead people to places. When he had opportunities to rebuke Donald Trump, unlike yes. Charlie Baker in Mass or Phil Scott in Vermont, he has repeatedly declined to rebuke Donald Trump. 30% of New Hampshireites agree with Donald Trump. Why is he afraid to stand with the 70% of us that think that Donald Trump is the wrong direction? Yeah, really. We, if there's ever a time we need leadership that's willing to get a little bit ahead and lead, I think it's now. We have some long-term challenges to face as a state. We've got to be the best state in America to start and raise a family and to start and grow a business. we got to get younger, and we got to get more entrepreneurial pronto. And the policies that Chris has sort of bounced around like a ping-pong ball are not driving towards a mission. And that is the mission we need. And most of the things he's advocated for will not help us achieve that mission. So a big part of this is to help define what the mission needs to be and exactly how we're going to reach it. Interesting. That's looking forward and coming up with positive solutions, not just, uh, you know, the puppy stuff. <laughs> and and actually, and I would think that the business community, which, you know, they, they get taxed here. You know, there's the business profits tax, there's the business enterprise tax. They don't... They could use a better, uh, I think, environment uh, to, to make New Hampshire more welcoming. He talks about it. My sense is that when you talk to these business leaders and, and people who may sometime in the future start a small business, uh, I would think there might be an opening there. The things that Chris has prioritized do not match what I heard well over 100 times when I would go. He says he spoke to 100 businesses. It's not really true. He would do these uh, brief uh, group conversations that didn't get into the weeds of what actually moves the needle in terms of growth. I actually did spend through my job half a day or a day at a time sitting with the CEO and the head of HR and the head of engineering and all the, the and then t- going on and walking the floor and talking to people on the line right, right. in a non-political environment. That's critical. Just listening. And where I'm from with my auditing background, when the same data points cluster good hundred times, you should probably listen. <laughs> and they said four things. They said, deliver America's best pre-K through 12 public education because that's the ultimate magnet that draws young yes, families and keeps them here. Absolutely. It increases we don't have that now. We, we don't have that now. We don't. And we are, no state in America tells its cities and towns, you're on your own more than New Hampshire does. Mm. The most conservative lawmaker in Alabama will vote for more spending 
than the most liberal lawmaker in New Hampshire. Oh my God. Because it's a completely different way of looking at it. And yet we are trying to drive to the Alabama model of economic growth. We cut the business profits tax, but a very small number of businesses pay substantial business profits sure. tax. Entrepreneurs that start the businesses that create the jobs, they don't pay the BPT, the profits tax, because right. they don't make a profit in the first five years. Now, they do pay business enterprise tax, right. and I do favor uh, reducing that as much as we can, because I think that is an impediment to new business growth. Absolutely. But they also want to get rid of the um, non-compete clauses, the uh, applicability of non-compete clauses. California has been doing that for a long time. And California, which has high, is a high-tax environment, is also the world center of entrepreneurship for technology, for entertainment, even for agriculture. And uh, when I ask people that have spent time in California, why, despite high property value, right. high water cost, income tax, sales, all these things, why is it this dynamic economy? One of the first things that comes up is it was, until recently, the only state that had a non-enforceability of non-compete clauses. Because I'll tell you what's going on in this country, and Bernie has talked about this indirectly, and he's right. We're seeing a, an explosion of service jobs, low-paying service jobs, that are requiring their employees to sign non-compete agreements, which means that if they leave a retail outlet and they want to go work for another retail outlet that will pay them $2 more an hour, they can get threatened with a lawsuit from the big corporate center that has a big in-house legal department saying, you signed a non-compete clause. You can't work in a similar job for one or two years because of the intellectual property you might be stealing. Oh. Come on, you're going from Target to Wall. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> what? This is it's getting wow. abused. Interesting. Almost one-third of, of Americans getting hired in this country are now being asked and forced to sign a non-compete clause. It is one of the the strongest impediments to people moving to better places in the economy, that and the way we do healthcare. New Hampshire could be the fourth state in America that would mimic California's non-compete uh, uh, ban. Right. That should be a Republican issue. California, one of the most Democratic states in the country. Sure. Jerry Brown, hey, embrace this. It has is, it is increased entrepreneurship. You know, that's something I've never heard any politician talk about, any candidate ever talk about that. But obviously, you've learned that from being out there and, and hearing from people. That's really interesting. And we have North Dakota and Oklahoma, two of the most conservative states in the country. They recently mimicked California's law. So if anybody says, Steve, if it's California, it's got to be liberal. Okay, ask North Dakota and Oklahoma if it's, quote, liberal. Math is nonpartisan. <laughs> oh, those facts are such inconvenient. And, and when you embrace the math, yeah, I, my argument is math leads you generally to a number of what we today call progressive solutions. But they just are the result of the analytical process. The reason paid family leave is a good idea, again, the heart and the head. Right. We know it closes the pay equity gap between men and women. We know it keeps women in the workforce at a time when we don't have enough people in the workforce. Hmm. We know that it improves health care outcomes for babies and, uh, and their moms. But when I go to Peterborough last year and do a town hall meeting, and a woman who's seven months pregnant in the middle of my speech stands up and says, I want to thank you for being the first candidate to have a specific plan. For me, it's nine hundredths of one percent payroll tax deduction goes into a shared risk pool like unemployment insurance. It allows us to have up to three months of paid family leave for the birth or adoption of a child 
long-term illness of a family member, mm. or an end-of-life situation. The real world, in other words. We know it has these positive benefits. She says you're the first candidate of any office to get that specific. It costs $29 a year for the median New Hampshire income. And we can get the three months paid family leave in exchange. 82% of New Hampshireites want it. The business community wants it because they need more people in the workforce. She goes, I want it because I'm seven months pregnant. I'm having my first kid in two months. I got two earned days off and I don't know what I'm doing the third day. Wow. What kind of family-friendly environment is that? My what, goodness. Like, my state that I was born in, I'm raised in, I'm raising my kids and I'm going to die in. Yeah. I hope to lead. My state doesn't look like that. My state says to that woman, we, we, we have the lowest birth rate in America. Thank you for having a child in New Hampshire. Why? I don't want you to be screwed because you're having a child. We act as if we're surprised people still get pregnant. Oh, my goodness. So let's let's get futuristic and let's get pro entrepreneur and let's have a little compassion at the same time. And there, and people have expressed concern that young people are leaving the state in droves. Well, young people are generally the people starting families. <laughs> we have we have seen a collapse in the number of school age kids in this state. Our peak year for K through twelve population was the o two o three school year. It has gone down without exception mm. every year since then. And if you look at the kids in school now, it continues to go down into the future. You know who knows it better than the politicians? The business people. Because they look at that and they say, if I invest in New Hampshire, one of two things is going to happen. If I make a poor investment, it will fail on the weight of the poor idea. If I make a smart investment and it takes off, I almost always need to hire people. And I will have nobody to hire. And that will cap the benefits I enjoy from taking the risk. So you're, you're damned if you take a risk and you're damned if you die. This sends the wrong message at a time when we need to get younger and more entrepreneurial. And all of these policies drive back towards achieving that mission statement. Well, one of the things that, uh, if you just tuned in anyway, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is uh, candidate for governor, Steve Marchand. Uh, and, you know, money. People said of Bernie... Oh, you want to give everything to everybody. How the heck are you going to pay for it? Well, he had answers, but we have a property tax system here that I think is dreadful. It's awful. It's unfair. It doesn't cover things. Basically, where are we going to get the money? There are a handful of places I begin. And I, first of all, tell folks um, we do need additional revenue. And yes, I didn't absolutely. I didn't take the pledge last year. Good for you. I, I'm saying again, I'm not taking it this time. And uh, And part of the reason for that is... It's funny that on every other issue, when I say on your program right now that I want to legalize recreational marijuana or I oppose the death penalty or any other issue, nobody questions. They may not agree with me, right. but they don't question the authenticity of my position. But on one issue, because of Mel Thompson and Bill Loeb, <laughs> uh, before I was born, <laughs> I have to take a pledge that I'm going to be, it's, a, it's supposed to be shorthand for fiscal responsibility, oh. but it's not. And I have a better record than the other folks running in the past or now on fiscal responsibility because in a position where I had to make, I, I was comfortable making difficult decisions. Mm -hmm. I understand the math of it. 
I've audited other cities. This is one place where I have a lot of credibility. The union leader's editorial page itself has said, is this guy more liberal than us on things like choice? I'm 100% pro-choice. Yes. But is he good with money? Yes, he is. And that was after I went to their ed board, and folks can go watch it online. It was a live uh, uh, webcast, and said, we need additional revenue. And And where do we get it? I'd like to reverse the business profits tax. I wanted to reverse the one last, the first round of it, which was $30 million a year. The, the one they just passed, another round of cuts in the business profits tax, will be over $100 million of additional revenue not realized when fully implemented in a few years. And yet that revenue, that, that, that money, is not going to lead to additional economic growth, but it will mean that we can't afford to do the four things the business community said they want us to do, pre-K through 12, Increase infrastructure investment. Yes. Legitimate reversal of the opiate crisis by creating the full suite of services needed. So it's not a criminal thing. It's a changing lives. It means multi-year. It means sticking with it. It means mental health. It means job skills. It means peer counseling. It's a full suite and it requires operating money. And that's not free. And the fourth thing is creating this culture of entrepreneurship I've been touching yes, on. Yes. These were the four things they said. And when I hear a politician say, great stuff, too bad we can't afford it. Wait a second. We just gave $100 million a year in the form of a business profits tax cut that the business people I talked to weren't asking for. Mm. They didn't ask for no minimum wage. They didn't ask for right to work. And they didn't ask for a business profits tax cut. But they did ask for the four things I just told you. So reverse the business profits tax cut. The second thing we mentioned earlier is legalization, regulation, taxation of marijuana an important note on that one good thing quotation air marks here yeah, yeah. of being slower than our neighbors on it is we are learning oh absolutely from our neighbors sure some of these states are being so aggressive on the tax rate that they think they can get away with 20 to 25 percent uh, excise tax on it and what we're quickly finding is that uh, at that uh, size excise tax, you begin to drive it back underground. Uh And so uh, it appears, Uh I believe, that when we get this thing right, it's going to probably be between about 8 and 12%. In other words, not that different from the rooms and meals tax, actually. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say it'll generate, when fully implemented, more like $30 a year of new revenue. Some people say 60. I hope I'm wrong. Because, but you yeah. always err on the side of going low. Sure. sure. So if I'm wrong, it's it, it creates opportunity, uh, not scrambling uh, in a reactive fashion. So I say 30 million a year. And the third is, and I've said it many times, I'm uh, open to an increase in the gas tax, not because I love the gas tax, right? Because I do think it's a somewhat regressive tax, and I don't like that, but because we need to attach it to infrastructure improvement. Uh, our red list of bridges and roads is growing. Uh. The pink list, which are the ones that are going to be on the... That's growing even faster. Uh, this We are communicating to the private sector what one self-described conservative CEO in Stratford County told me a few years ago. This person said, why would I invest in New Hampshire if New Hampshire doesn't invest in New Hampshire? Whoa. Boom. Smart wow. public investment breeds private investment. And that's one of the main takeaways. I tell everybody... At all my events, public investment, smart public investment breeds private investment. And and I will say, just happened to be on the news uh, last night, uh, some concrete fell from a bridge. You know, I saw that, yeah. And um, how is business going to feel about that? You know, 
that's some scary stuff. You, you, I mean, we have to do this stuff. We well, have to do it. And let's let's look at what's going on in the Houston area, oh, yeah. uh, which is stunning in the impact it's having on people. And I am I, I have not seen the news the last three or four hours, but um, I it, it is uh, fortunate and unlikely that so few people have died from uh, flooding that uh, is unprecedented, certainly in that part of the country. Yeah. One thing they knew because of the, they have a high water table. Uh, it's very flat. It's obviously near the water. One challenge they had is over the last 20 years is they've been redoing bridges and roads. They've been redoing it in a way with updated um, drainage systems ah. that actually, if it's impossible to believe, it would be worse if they hadn't been working on it. However, They've been only doing it at the pace of doing regular road and bridge repair. So it's a small percentage of the, the whole uh, region. Accelerating such modernization of infrastructure, people will complain about the cost of doing it. Can we talk about the cost of not doing it for oh, a second? Yeah. And again, the private sector, successful business leaders, they understand this, the cost-benefit analysis. And they want to see us, whether it's bridges or roads, water or wastewater, the number one reason why our property taxes are so high, it's not because of profligate spending. No. It's because state government does less than any state in America to help um, uh, kind of socialize the cost of infrastructure investments. So uh, what happens is we lack scale at a level that's unprecedented of any state in America. It costs us more per curb mile, uh, more pound uh, or whatever metric, whether it's sanding or bridges and roads, whatever we do per pupil, because we ask every town to basically do a lot of this stuff on its own in a way that no other state in the country asks its towns to do. And so we end up spending more money for compromised results hmm. because we do it in a way we say it's in the name of keeping taxes low. All you're doing is shifting it down to the local level. Right. And then you have America's highest local property taxes. Yeah, the property taxes are terribly unfair. I mean, when your property taxes, your house doesn't write the check for you. You write the check. It's it's terribly unfair. The money's green. I mean, whatever, that, you're paying that, whether you're paying it to your town hall or state government, you're paying it. <laughs> right. It, the, the money doesn't feel better coming out of your pocket on the way to the city. It's a shorter, I guess it's a shorter commute, uh, the money. But yeah. that's about it. But I'm telling you, if you use best practices like I've seen around the country, right. if you have the courage to actually talk about it and yeah. do it, this is where additional money in the places I've described at the state level will actually help build scale in ways that will lower overall costs and improve outcomes. How do we know this? Because other states have done this successfully. We can do it, too. We can learn from it. Well, we've come up against the end of the hour. Uh, this campaign has gone on a while for you, but it's just getting started. Yeah. Now, website. What can people do if they want to find out more? Because obviously there's a lot more we could talk about here, but... What can people do? I yeah, appreciate it. Uh, a couple easy ways. First of all, the website, stevemarchand.com. I want to thank all my French-Canadian brethren in Quebec for not stealing that uh, website before I got to it. Ah. stevemarchand.com. Uh, obviously, there are opportunities you'll see there from everything from volunteer, obviously, to learn more about me. Uh, we're hosting meet and greets everywhere under the sun. We'll continue to do that. It's the best way to campaign. If you oh, like yeah, what you've heard is. or you like what you read, you can email from that website. We have a great staff of people that will help us set that up. Obviously, you can contribute as well. Uh, we already have more donors this campaign than we had all of the last campaign. Really? And it's almost entirely oh a goodness. new donor set. It is a broader, wow. lower dollar base that I think is sustainable. It's something we learned from Bernie. I mean, <laughs> he figured out how to do that, and it makes it 
easier for me to do what I really want to do, which is campaign. Talk to, people, talk to people. Yeah. Steve Marchand, running for governor. Again, the website is stevemarchand.com. stevemarchand.com. Not too complicated. Thank you so much for being with us, and uh, your energy is uh, very refreshing. Thanks, Bert. Thank you. Thank you.